0: I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody? And welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, the extremely talented and very bright Lizzie Dastin, uh, dressed all in black today. And myself dressed in a terry cloth, terry cloth robe, which is not really a terry cloth robe, <laughs> but a very beautiful ladies' jacket that I'm wearing. That is making me look more like an artist than I really am.
1: It's not paint splattered, but it's quite fetching.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, today we are going to talk about the Norwegian painter Edvard Munch. Now, a lot <laughs> of people, it is Munch. I've heard it. Um, no, it, it is. I've heard. Art historians wax poetically about him and they always say munch. And
1: I really do call shenanigans on what that. What do you it's say, monk? Munk.
0: Munk. Yeah. So this. Munch. Is... I've heard munch, like <laughs> lunch or brunch. And brunch is obviously a portmanteau of breakfast and lunch.
1: Yes, exactly. But
0: I've heard munch. So whatever. Who cares? <laughs> I mean, he is a Norwegian painter. Uh, from born in like 1860, don't quote me exactly when, uh, but he is most known for... He's one of the artists that everybody knows his work because everybody knows The Scream. The Scream is, I would say, in the iconography annals of art history, The Scream, The Mona Lisa, Sistine Chapel... Botticelli's Birth of Venus. I mean, it, it's top five, perhaps, of the most recognizable paintings ever.
1: I think it's even top two. The Mona Lisa and The Scream are the most iconic images and in the Western DJ art. And the DJ
0: by Bua, but it doesn't, I'm not, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, we don't have 20, 20 hindsight on that to reflect, but I would say, I would, I would really say, um, yeah, you're probably right, probably top two. And because of that, It is also probably one of the most parodied works of all time.
1: Oh, my favorite parody is Home Alone, when (laughs) little Kevin McAllister puts the aftershave on his face and then he's like, ah, just like the scream. I don't know if it's an intentional parody. I think it is.
0: I've seen it parodied on everything. We've seen it used on everything. Everybody knows it. It's ubiquitous, to say the least. But it is definitely his best-known work, and the unfortunate reality is many people do not know the other body of his work. And he has produced uh, hundreds of prints, uh, thousands, thousands of paintings, over 2,000 paintings. I mean, he was a machine and he was at it for a long time with all kinds of styles, all kinds of styles. Uh, But people really just take away the scream. And by the way, he did many interpretations of the scream. Is that correct?
1: He did. He did at least four painted versions on panel or canvas, and then he did a litho of it as well. And we, even though the scream is ubiquitous, as you mentioned, which is totally accurate, I still think that we should spend a lot of time discussing why it's so iconic and what the resonance is and why it has risen to this meteoric place in our visual lexicon.
0: Okay, yeah, so if let's you do insist, that too. I mean Jesus, I'm like looking at you like, well, if you really, you want to start with the scream or do you want to, I mean, you want to say that Monk, you know, Munch, oh. <laughs> which by the way, during some of the shows, his big show in Berlin, they called him Blunch. They couldn't even get his name right.
1: Blunch?
0: Yeah, he, you know, he was, he was riddled with a lot of weird things. His mother died when he was five. I think he had a very early onset of depression and a lot of people, I mean, he was an alcoholic. He had a lot of death in his family, his sisters. And he he was just very tortured. He was a very classic. We think about artists that are tortured like Van Gogh, who cuts his ear off, uh, other artists. And then there's artists who really have wonderful lives, like Monet, perhaps. But, Although
1: he experienced blindness at the end of his career. So I think I mean, we all, there were some hardships. Sure, but yeah.
0: We all experienced tragedy. But the point
1: is. And bourgeois privilege, certainly Monet experience. For sure. But Monk
0: M- had a, you know, Munch, what, I can't. Monk. Monk. <laughs> right, I'm going to say it the way you want me to say it.
1: <laughs> yes. Monk uh,
0: had a very hard life full of alcoholism, death, you know, and, and just every way that he turned. He seemed like a very unhappy fellow.
1: Yeah, and I think that that also reflects the time. He's a fantasy eclipse painter. He is infusing his imagery with such fierce expression and emotion. And hearing that that emotion comes from challenges in his childhood, it kind of amplifies the imagery even more. And he was a student of this really iconic Norwegian painter named Krog. I don't know how it's actually said, but it has a little umlaut on it. But this guy was really famous for his depiction of a sick child, which was an image that we see again and again at the turn of the century because I think disease was affecting people with increased rates. Yeah, and
0: tuberculosis. That's how his mom died and his sister. So there right, was exactly. a lot and of so, death by tuberculosis. A lot.
1: And so I think that with that comes the vulnerability and the fragility of the body and also the emotional impact of the loss of somebody who's so meaningful, whether it be a mother or the fear of losing somebody who's so young. I think that with Especially an image of a child who's dying that activates our death drive that Freud talks about a lot, where it's not just the sadness of the incident, but the realization that that could happen to us. Like, we don't want to see children mm-hmm. in that spot, that right. sick, suffering that intensely. So, that's his early career. He's working with this mm-hmm. guy who's so emotionally infused. And then, Monk takes that to a whole other level when he charges that intensity with the vivacity of his colors and the swirling lines. He's not painting from observation, he is perceiving and reimagining and reforming his memory. And I think that that's why his work is so dynamic to look at. Specifically the Scream, which was done in 1893. It's in a Norwegian setting, so we have a fjord in the background. This Androgynous person is on a bridge. We assume that the gender is male because the gender of the artist is male, but we don't really know. There are no body identifiers. It's the skeletal figure with attenuated fingers, and this creature is overwhelmed with something we don't know what's happening the colors are swirling above him and so it feels like this visual cacophony and this person has his or her hands over over his or her face and there's this auditory scream and even though it's a visual medium we hear it And what I've always loved is the ambiguity because the title is The Scream. I think the assumption is that the person is screaming, Mm -hmm. but the person could be shielding his or her ears from the majestic scream of nature, from the wild.
0: Right, which is, I think, what he said, and I think that was put very eloquently, all of that. You put it together very eloquently because I've never, when I look at The Scream, I never even think about uh, the character being a female. I always think about, male or alien. I mean it, it's it's really bizarre because it has an alien-shaped Martian-like head. And it's really amorphic and it's swirling. And the, the the physical body feels like it is swirling like nature, except it is not there is no color. It is absent really of color and yet the sky behind the figure is blood orange. And that is really what he says, right? That One day he was walking, he looked up to the sky, and it was like blood orange, blood red, and he felt like nature was screaming. And that recalls a lot of pain for anybody looking at that. that. That feels very painful. We've seen that sky before, but usually when we see that sky before, we pull out our phones and take a picture, and we go, oh, my God, isn't this serene? Isn't this calming? What a beautiful sight to see. But he sees the world through his tragic lens of s- s- kind of sickness and fear. And there there is a really bizarre undulating color movement that feels panicky. And it is definitely echoed through the physiology of this amorphic Genderless character who was going, ah, ah, and you're like, ah, you're what you know. You start, you look at the painting and you're going, ah, so it's really scary and weird. If you kind of really just study it and you don't make fun of it, it's real easy just to because it's become so iconic that it's real easy to make fun of it or to laugh at it, or you because we've seen it and parodied for over and over again through the years. But if you really, really study it and look at it. It is fear provoking and it makes you kind of look within your own self.
1: I definitely agree with that. And I love what you said about the body being drained of color. And yet the sky is infused with blood because it's almost like the fluids of our body are now imprinted or taken over by nature. And so it, that emphasizes this relational dynamic between the body and the world and how mm. blood that should be in the body is now in the sky. And so I wow. kind of... I, I, I
0: think that Edvard Munch would have been proud of that and been like, yeah, that's what I that's said. What I you meant. know what I mean? Because <laughs> when I was trying to do the painting, I... Wanted to take the blood of the human body and throw it into the sky. I mean, but who cares? You know what? As soon as the
1: paint dries, it's not his anymore. It's all of ours. And so, if that is our joint interpretation that we kind of did, is this little improv exercise? I've never thought of it that way. I've never heard the analysis that you offered. Then that's just as valuable as what he was trying to accomplish. So. I see uh, this dialectic of internal and external, the internal being maybe the universal ills of us all that this one creature is embodying, and then the external being the actual world and nature and these forces that we can't control. And it's a really psychologically complex painting. It is. And I also think that there's a dialectic of sensory experiences. And Monk, he was thought to have endured synesthesia, which we've talked about before with Kandinsky, where it's a confusion of the senses. So one might see a sound or hear a color. And seen through that lens, then maybe all of those dynamic, frightening, oppressive, cacophonous colors, that they are the embodiment of a sound.
0: Yeah, he was known early on to use a lot of complementary colors, a lot lot of complementary... Powerful blues versus oranges, uh greens and reds, stuff that was very striking. Getting into him as a painter. Look, I love The Scream and I, I I like some of his other work. I don't, he's not one of my favorite artists by any stretch of the imagination. Is he yours by any? I'm just
1: favorite? No, I right. see the significance, <laughs> but not personally. I think that it's so dark and broody Mm -hmm. and difficult that I wouldn't say it's one of my favorites because it's hard for me.
0: Yeah. I don't even love his compositions. Like when I look at his body of work and the scream is obviously great. uh, There's some work that is very great. And and then a lot of work that just kind of feels, I don't know, perhaps he was working through and and that's what artists do, right? They work through some, something psychologically, to heal themselves or because they have to, he, the, the angst. And, and like you said, it's difficult for you, right? That was a very great choice of words. You did say that, right? I did. Yeah. Okay, I'm not projecting that. <laughs> no. You said it's difficult and it's difficult for me to look at his paintings too. I don't even like half or more than half of his work. I look at it and I go, the colors are off. The the drawing is bad. The, the painting is okay. The compositions, not great like and a lot of the work i struggle with that and some of his you know some of his earlier work is very experimental and very copycat-ish because he's trying to do a little bit of what serrat did you know with pointillism and he's trying to do a little bit of what the impressionist did with color and he's trying to be a little bit of a fauvist and he's trying to be whatever i mean he he feels derivative early on especially with a lot of his work i'm trying to be a little gustav klimt i'm trying to be a little you know sheila whatever Well, he's
1: trying to come into focus and for we sure. feel and that we all- experimentation and the articulation of self
0: and so i'm not looking at his work like wow this is striking me as original and you know for sure he's coming from an autobiographical place especially with the children and, which reminds me a lot of katie Cowitz when you look at her Personal depiction of her own children uh, that had died, and and she's also painting and drawing and doing lithography of sick kids. It's very hard to look at uh, as an adult, especially you know a parent looking at children like that. It's it it's difficult, and so I think everything about Munch <laughs> about
1: <laughs> it is really
0: difficult. It really is to to experience his work, the body of his work. Uh, is challenging, and to even say that, you know, so we're we're being subjective, You know, we're being completely uh, subjective on the show. We're not being objective. We're, I think he's an important artist, but I don't really love his work.
1: And for me, just to go off of what you said, I think what makes him a significant artist for me is also what makes him challenging to access because he is so a product of his time. And there's this deep cultural systemic angst that I feel in his paintings that I don't personally relate to that is an interesting integer of history. But for me, coming from my contemporary lens, there's also a a little bit of alienation I do appreciate some of the compositional innovations, though. There's this one painting that he did a few years after The Scream, which... Oh, oh, by the way, about The Scream, we should talk Mm. about The Theft a little bit, because since it is so iconic, many people have tried and successfully stolen it... (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Of course. And there was one I will never forget. The the Scream was stolen from some museum in Oslo. And then the person who took it said, thanks for the the light security or thanks, you know, thanks for making it so easy for me to jack. And I thought that was funny. And then a private collector bought another version in, I think, 2012 for $120 million dollars. So obviously, Great. he's onto something, right? Like, this is the zeitgeist. But anyway, so a few years after The Scream, Monk did a work called The Dance of Life. And mm-hmm. that's one of my personal favorites because we see a, a really nuanced version of composition. It's almost like multiple narratives that are condensed into one. And we read it in Western society. We read from left to right. And mm-hmm. so true with this painting, we read it from left to right, And on the left portion, it's this young girl, and color is symbolic here. And so she is in a white dress, which I think indicates her purity, Mm. specifically her sexual purity, and she has this shocking red hair. And then in the center, we see a really uh, energetic dance between Mm. a woman with the same shocking red hair, which alludes to the fact that it's the same woman just over time, and now she's in a red dress, read about sexual experience and she's in the arms of this man who looks lascivious like the two of them are consuming each other and so that I think is a celebration of adulthood and then on the right there's a woman also with the shocking red hair and she's dressed in black and I think that indicates a life cycle and it's almost like a whole painting of a memento mori the eventuality of death but the celebration of the journey.
0: That was based on this lady, Tulum, that really loved him and followed him everywhere. And he was running from her all over Europe. I don't know if you know that part of it. Yeah. So it's based on this lady who I think he famously wrote like kissing her is like kissing sweaty, clammy lips. Something (laughs) was like he was really disgusted by her. How romantic. Yeah. No, he was disgusted (laughs) by her and eventually got together with her and then left her and uh, shot himself in some kind of suicidal thing but wound up shooting his finger off and then was so bizarrely affected by his appearance, he was so self-conscious, so deeply self-conscious, that he from that point on only wore gloves and didn't want to be with her. But the second he was like, okay. We'll be together, but not really. She fell in love with another artist. But she was obsessed with him, and she followed him everywhere. And that was the woman in that painting. And the character in the middle was, was Edward himself. Interesting. And then all the characters in the background, they say, were also emblematic of those two people in different parts of the dance. And it's interesting because they're dancing, right? So there's a relationship metaphor that I always love, which is the relationships are a close dance. Sometimes you're flowing beautifully and in sync together, and other times you're stepping on each other's toes. Mm. And I feel like that's part of what this is. It's about the relationship. It's also, like you said, a narrative of beginning, middle, and end of life. And in, in some way, one painting encompasses a triptych of emotional uh, beauty. And it's, it's a symphony as well. I think that was one of his other paintings that I would say is very successful because there's there's more there. There's a, there's a story there. Once I found out about the story of this woman, too, it was much more impactful for me.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And it isn't just beginning, middle, end, like a typical life cycle, because then it would be a child, an adult, and an older woman. Right. But it's the beginning, middle, and an end of a sexualized exploration of self. And so I think that a lot of his work is very sexual in nature. And that makes me think of another one of my favorite paintings of his, which is called Madonna. Mm -hmm. Very controversial because specifically of its title, which is interesting because Monk himself did not title the work. So what it is, we see a nude woman and a signifier of the Madonna is that often she'll have a halo. So in more, traditional renderings of her, I'm thinking of Raphael or any depiction from the Italian Renaissance, you'll see a tiny little stylized gold halo. But here, that halo is infused with a red. Now, going from our interpretation of the last painting, red was the embodiment of a sexualized self. So we're not used to seeing the Madonna exploring her own female pleasure. We think of her as a virginal figure. So here, not only does her halo turn to red, which indicates something that we haven't seen, but also her body is nude. And we see a little bit under her nose, a little bit under her chin, indicating that we as a viewer are above her. And so if we're above her, what is the action? She looks like she's lying down. You're saying we see above her chin or below her chin? We, the way that, and you would be able to.
0: I think we're below her.
1: We are above her, but she's okay. lying down. Oh, okay. So however he expresses that in the the shadows, even though the painting is vertical, the perspective is horizontal. Gotcha. And so I think that suggests sex, right? If we presumably are a male viewer mm-hmm. and we are above her nude body. Mm-hmm. And so that's uncomfortable to see... The Madonna as engaging in a sexual act with us as a viewer. That's unusual. And then finally, the frame is made up of all of these little sperms. Mm. And then at the bottom on the left is this alien-looking fetus. Right. So (laughs) that's different. And the character (laughs) and
0: the figure looks very... uh, I don't know why I always... It just reminds me of an Egon Sheila drawing. It's a little bit Sheila-ish. Very. And he he wasn't very... um, Draftsmanshipy, he wasn't very concerned with with draftsmanship um, or academia. He was very emotional. He was an emotional painter. He was a feeling painter. He was painting from the psychology, uh, from from more from color than he really was from uh, academic correct draftsmanship drawing. Uh, and you know what I also like is later, later in his life. Because he went through a lot of phases. He did a bunch of murals for a chocolate factory, uh, which, were, which he got paid a pretty penny for way back when. And then he did a bunch of uh, uh, murals, giant murals, other places. But a lot of his later, very last works were self-portraits, kind of dealing and confronting age. There's some there that are pretty interesting and powerful. I think he was connecting with. Finally, here is you know, here I am, right at death's door. In fact, I think he did a portrait uh, during his last sickness, hmm. his last cold that he never got over, uh, and some of those are powerful. And I think what I will say about him, although, like I said, he's not one of he's not my top ten favorite artists, but I feel like there's a lot of truth with his work. I don't think he was painting, for sure, for money, uh, for fame, for fortune. He was painting because he had to. He was very successful. I mean, at his time, let's not forget that he was considered the greatest painter in Norway. That's a pretty big deal, especially for what he was doing. I mean, like, could you imagine like, us in America putting on an artist who was so dark and brooding at that time? No. We, we elevate Rockwell and all of these beautiful narratives and these, this great drawing and these, these smiling figures. Not an artist who is painting sick children.
1: Right. No, Monk is exposing this darker, more sinister, more authentic underbelly of the times. And I think that was incredibly honest and vulnerable. Absolutely. I really, I love your connection to Sheila because I think what unites these two artists is that their general, their oeuvre, they really activate sex and death and identity and decay and bodies being ravaged by various diseases. Mm-hmm. And STIs were prevalent in Europe at the time. And so I think that when he is addressing his own sense of self or when we see various breakdowns of his body, that these are all things, uh, cultural and historical, that he is bringing in to the actual paintings themselves.
0: So there you have it, a little snippet about Edvard... Munch. Munchkin. That little <laughs> munchkin cutie pie. And everybody, uh, which is so funny because he was such a dark, brooding character and, and heavy. He's a cutie. Just, I don't feel like he was a fun guy, by the way. He wasn't a guy who you'd be like, hey, let's hang out with this dude. He's funny. <laughs> no, he was a probably miserable.
1: Probably uh, a downer. Yeah, he's a downer.
0: <laughs> Debbie Downer. Uh, everybody... Leave us, a com- leave us a comment on whatever you're on. Whatever you can, please. We do this for the... We also like Munch. We do it for the love and not the fame and the fortune. Uh, we do this because we have to, and we want to get you guys information for everybody because we feel like art and history is so important, and these artists are... It's just so important that you guys have access to to art. It's just paramount that you you write us and and give your two cents back this is not PBS asking for a donation this is Lizzie Dassen and Bua asking you just to write something and you know give us five stars peace (laughs)